You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome. I'm Maureen Kelly, a co-chair of the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force. We are very excited and grateful that Dan Sutherland and Jen Daskal have agreed to join us today to bring us an overview of that cybersecurity executive order. Now over to Dan and Jen to talk about the EO. Thank you, Maureen. Jen and I wanted to start by thanking the ABA, both the Cybersecurity Task Force and the Standing Committee on Law and National Security for hosting. We believe that it's very important for CISA and our department to engage proactively with the legal community. So Jen and I are going to go back and forth, have a conversation through the EO and hopefully spend about 20, 25 minutes kind of going through the executive order. And we really want to start, we want to put the executive order into broader context. And really the cyber EO is only one of many activities going on in the cyber landscape right now. The first thing I wanted to mention in the cyber landscape is new leadership. In our department, we have Secretary Mayorkas who has uh, obviously come into office and you know we know him because he has been here before. We also know him because he practiced law in this area and he has a great interest in this area. And Jen's gonna talk about this some, but just a huge asset to, to us and the cybersecurity mission to have Secretary Mayorkas and his interest. Now, the president has appointed a new executive assistant director for cyber in our agency, CISA, a gentleman named Eric Goldstein. Eric is a practicing attorney we also have uh, our new deputy director, Nitin Natarajan, another executive assistant director for the infrastructure security side, David Mussington, and of course, Brandon Wales, who's our acting director. So these are all names that you should know and key figures in the, in the CISA area. And uh, we know that the president has nominated Jen Easterly to be the next CISA director, and that will be considered on the Hill here in the upcoming uh, weeks and months. Of course, at the White House, we have the National Security Council's Deputy National Security Advisor, Ann Newberger, who's been who's behind a lot of this in the cyber EO. And then, of course, the president has nominated Chris Inglis to be the new National Cyber Director. And the last person I want to mention in terms of new leadership is Jen Daskal. But we're so thrilled to have somebody of her background to have a scholar in this area. And so I hope that that gives the audience a bit of a lay of the land of, of new leadership and how fortunate those of us who've been here for some time feel to have this host of new talented people. So Jen, do you want to talk about some other aspects of what's going on in the cyber landscape? Sure, absolutely. And um, first, just want to echo the thanks to the, to the ABA for putting this together. Um, but just to talk for a moment about some of the work that is done within the department. We obviously have CISA, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about um, CISA today. But I also want to remind everybody that we have Secret Service, we have ICE, who do an enormous amount of work investigating and prosecuting cyber-enabled crime. Um, last year alone, the Secret Service arrested more than 1,000 people for cyber-enabled financial crimes and prevented over $2 billion in potential fraud as a result in connection with those investigations. The TSA and the Coast Guard have robust and really important authorities to regulate and issue guidance with respect to security, including cybersecurity standards in the surface transport area with respect to pipelines, which I'm sure we will talk about more today. So with that, we're gonna now turn to the Cyber EO. 
you know, I think it's important to recognize that this EO is is a big deal. It's pretty rare to have an EO that's as many pages as as this EO is, um, and that has as many kind of complicated, really important provisions all in one. And it's part of the administration's commitment to build back better, including by modernizing our nation's cybersecurity defenses and protecting the infrastructure and services, particularly focused on the federal government. The, so the EO is focused on modernizing, particularly with respect to the federal government. EOs, and I think everybody here knows this, EOs can't direct the private sector. EOs can't create new authorities that don't already exist. But EOs can, and this EO does, leverage the power of the White House to signal priorities and to support the use of existing authorities in ways that serve those key priorities. Just to start, I wanna lay out what I think are kind of the most interesting and innovative aspects of this EO. And the first is the way in which the EO leverages procurement power of the federal government to among many other things, impose reporting requirements and standards that must apply with respect to the service providers and other entities with which the federal government contracts. The other piece of this that is a real focus and um, I think really important to highlight is the focus of the EO on improving information sharing about incidents and potential incidents. And that again is done in part by improving information sharing in the interagency process, and again, in part through the power of the procurement power, the use of the procurement power to insist that entities that are contracting with the federal government eliminate what have been in the past problematic provisions that limit the ability of those private entities to share information, in particular to share information with, with CISA and CISA needs that information in order to do the kind of defensive work and response that is critical in the wake of incidents uh, and ideally to do the kind of threat hunting and prevention that stops incidents from occurring in the first place. Um, there's many, many other provisions in there and I'm gonna turn back to Dan in a second. Just wanna highlight a few others that I think are innovative and exciting. The creation of a cyber safety review board. That is something that CISA is now working actively to begin to um, set up in place the bylaws, the effect of the backbone to actually put, get this up and running, support for an endorsement of threat hunting authorities, improvements in cloud security, critically important as everybody knows, and pushing for improvements in the development of software used in the supply chain. Dan, I'm gonna turn it back to you to kind of walk through in more detail some of these kind of key provisions. Good, I'll do that. Um, so these provisions in the EO are intended to address the incidents that we were struggling with in December, January, as this was um, written. So you'll see as we walk through the different provisions, I'll tell you what the problem was and what uh, we're how we're trying to address that. So it's important, I guess, for that that framing is it is informed by recent incidents and it builds on the uh, maturation of, of the cyber 
defensive uh, mission that CIS has been given and, and improved on over the years. Okay, so the first bucket that, that we wanted to talk about is improvements in information sharing about incidents and potential incidents. So here's the problem. We observed that IT and OT service providers who contract with the government are sometimes hesitant to and sometimes argue they are unable to share information about incidents that they know about or potential incidents, vulnerabilities that they're aware of with CISA and the FBI and perhaps others who might be involved in, in response, but primarily um, CISA and the FBI. They often claim that their contract clauses prevent the sharing of information. They say that when they become aware of a vulnerability or an incident, that they can only deal with directly with that agency. They cannot report that to CISA or the FBI who would then be involved in, in, in helping with that. So um, we often are finding ourselves aware of information, but not able to find out who the federal agency is who's involved in it. And then going back and then having to survey um, federal agencies. So the executive order, particularly in section two, um, requires us to help develop standard contract clauses that would be implemented through the FAR process. And through this, these contract clauses, the executive order says that uh, these service providers are going to be required to collect and preserve data, to share data, and to collaborate with CISA and FBI during investigations. They're also going to be required to share that information in industry-recognized formats for in, uh, incident response and remediation. So uh, an interesting thing about this EO is it goes beyond just information sharing and it starts to dive down more deeply and say this is the way we need the information reported to us so that so that you can get into a quick um, remediation in uh, section 2 gi or 1 um, the eo actually details the types of reporting that dhs is going to be trying to get uh, inserted into that into those contract clauses so this is going to be requiring for the first time i don't know jen if you want to com comment on this um, at all but uh, the sharing of cyber threat information, of incident response sharing, is, is a topic we talk about all the time. Congress has been talking about legislation. This is now the first time that because of the executive order and what we'll do through the contract clause is that those who are government contractors will be required to share information about threats. The second bucket is um, support for an endorsement of our threat hunting activities. As I mentioned in Section 1705 of the NDAA, um, it'll, it permits CISA to engage in threat hunting, quote, without authorization from agencies. So how are we going to leverage that authority? Um, third big bucket is the creation of a cyber safety review board similar to on the concept of an NTSB, that we would have that in, a, in the cyber context. We need to do, uh, do in-depth after action reports, what happened, why did it happen? What are things that we learned from that? Lessons for government, lessons for other companies. So that's a really interesting um, provision as well that we are, as Jen said, we're, we're working now on creating the flesh on that skeleton. Now, another big bucket of, of area of, of work is improvements in cloud security. Um, recent incidents are proving that we have a real lack of visibility in the cloud environment. And so this EO really focuses on some important issues in, in improving security in a cloud environment. We are required to develop a set of security principles. OMB then is going to develop a cloud security strategy for the federal government. 
we then are, are going to develop um, really technical information, a technical reference architecture uh, for the cloud. And then we're going to develop a set of um, cloud governance frameworks. And then the, uh, the EO requires that agencies adopt all of that. And, and I just wanted to track back to um, Jen's earlier comment on standards of care. These will be security principles that govern the provision of cloud, uh, uh, cloud environment for federal agencies. It'll be very interesting for us to watch whether there will be a ripple effect associated with that. Another big area is um, improvements in the development of software used in the supply chain. We've seen that the development of commercial software, we really lack transparency in that. Um, and the development of software lacks a, an attention to security. And so the EO requires NIST to develop guidelines in this area. The Secretary of Commerce is going to publish the minimum elements for a software bill of materials. It's going to be really an interesting and important, I think, um, development. Uh, Secretary of Commerce is also going to publish a definition of the term critical software, which we will then follow up with a, um, a description to um, federal agencies of categories of software that fit that definition. So over the upcoming months, I think there'll be some really interesting developments, important developments in, in that area. And then also Secretary of Commerce is going to recommend minimum standards for vendors testing uh, of their software source code. And then I'll just touch on one last thing, which is there's a, a whole bucket of, of issues that will improve in how CISA can help federal agencies. Uh, we're going to develop, develop a federal incident response playbook. What we find is every organization responds to incidents differently. And it makes it hard for our folks to engage. So we'll have a, a, a federal incident response playbook. We're going to improve detection of vulnerabilities. The issue there is that we operate um, uh, sensors at the perimeter of the .gov. So we see traffic at the perimeter. But what we don't have visibility into is um, activity at the endpoint, at the object level, at the computer level. And so this executive order says to uh, agencies, you need to modify the agreements that you have with CISA so that CISA can have uh, visibility into uh, object level data. That's also where some of the American Rescue, a lot of the American Rescue Fund uh, money is going. And then the very last thing is we're going to um, uh, re really requiring people to focus on logs so that we can do investigative and remediation work. Logging has been a, a real issue. So there is a broad overview of uh, the EO. And I don't know, Jen, if you want to add some couple of things. No, I think, I mean, that, I think, Dan, that was great. I'm going to join in again, I think. And, and we are getting questions as you spoke. So this is probably not going to come as a surprise to either of you that I'm going to talk about colonial pipelining and, and uh, that's going to be an issue. And we um, have gotten um, a two-part question here is, do you believe that the EO addresses critical digital infrastructure sufficiently? Um, and second, in your opinions, what do you believe the metrics of success for this EO will be? And I'll add, you know, both within the government and then what are you wanting to see um, with respect to what happens, you know, on what the EO is also trying to influence, which is the private private sector. And and the first part of that question, I think it's again critical to kind of understand the, the scope of the EO. The EO is really about modernizing the federal government's response to cyber vulnerabilities and ensuring better resiliency, better defense inside the federal government. 
that, as I've said, I think one of the innovative pieces of this or the exciting pieces of this is that because everything is a public-private partnership when you're talking about cybersecurity, is that as the federal government's doing that, it's doing that in part be its demands on the private entities that contract with the federal government in terms of requiring certain types of information sharing and ultimately certain types of standards applied by those partners. Um, the pipeline and other, other areas that are part of the critical infrastructure are not reached by the EO. That was not the EO's intent. So the EO tackles a very different problem than the problem that was presented, it has been presented by the by Colonial Pipeline. Um, that said, um, you know, the department, the government as a whole um, is focusing on thinking about um, a sec you know, sector by sector, how to improve cybersecurity in, in its critical sectors. The department in particular is thinking about and working through how it can use its authorities um, to um, help better ensure the resiliency um, and responses to incidents by pipeline sector and other critical sectors as well. Yeah, can I jump in on ransomware just for a minute? We had been focused on ransomware for a couple of years prior to this, but obviously this heightens everybody's focus. And just to build on what Jen has said, the secretary has really asked, really pushed for uh, there to be some really concrete um, movement here. So I would encourage people, we have posted a new um, web page just uh, focused on ransomware and on guidance, guidelines, um, exercises you can do, um, assessments that you can use. So I'll just say, and I'll probably say this several more times, but CISA.gov is a phenomenal resource uh, for people to think about in terms of ransomware. <clears throat> on the, the question I think asked about, does the executive order, I think the question used the word sufficiently protect critical uh, infrastructure. If anybody can uh, tell us when we hit the, the uh, standard of, of sufficiently, let me know. What we're trying to do is take some substantial new steps to address these issues that we have confronted in these past uh, few months and, and past couple of years of building on that. These are substantial new steps. I don't think we should understate that. Um, so in terms of the get, then get to the next part of the question, which is about metrics. And I do think there are uh, measures of effort and measures of results, two different types of metrics. And in terms of measures of effort, that's what we're, we're focused on because one thing we wanna highlight is, and if you've read the EO, you know this, there's so many short deadlines, very aggressive deadlines which is wonderful. That's because the uh, leadership wants action quickly, and they know that these things can be executed on quickly. So we are very closely tracking each one of the elements of the, of the EO and, and trying to make sure that we hit those deadlines. So that's measures of effort you'll be able to see, you know, I think relatively quickly is turnaround in terms of, of these products. We get reports every week um, of how many federal agencies have done X or Y or Z charts and graphics and all the rest. So I think that's something you'll look for is specific elements of, of metrics on each one of these areas as, as we go along. We're um, getting some questions from people who uh, work with companies that are DOD contractors. And part of their questions as I, if I combine these here is, whether you think of their current clause, which requires compliance with and incorporation of the uh, NIST 800-181 standard, or their cybersecurity uh, maturity model, um, which is a 
one that they have said that they will grow into over the next um, five years. They're asking kind of, what's the relationship between CISA and DOD? And do you think the EO will help influence agencies other than DOD to adopt some of these requirements for um, their contractors? Um, Jen, I think you want me to take that one. Just to point out real quickly that section nine of the EO deals with national security systems. And it, um, it's important to know this EO deals with civilian, federal civilian executive branch agencies. But section nine says that national security systems, quote, shall adopt or uh, shall adopt requirements that are equivalent to or exceed the cybersecurity requirements set forth in this order uh, that are not otherwise applicable to national security systems. So that's the provision that relates to uh, national security systems that I thought might be helpful. So the, the question is, uh, you know, obviously the, the uh, Defense Department has made a lot of really interesting progress. They have uh, uh, moved a lot further in terms of contract clauses, and they have the CMMC uh, regime also. So what I think the value of this executive order, or the, the emphasis of the executive order is learning from some of those uh, <clears throat> um, advancements and then finding ways to merge both the civilian side and the DOD side so that we learn together and grow together in, in these types of issues so that we get, like Jen talked about earlier, the procurement power. As I said, I think the DOD has, is well in front of the federal civilian executive branch agencies in terms of using the procurement power. And this now is an area that we're really focused on in, in the executive order. I can't say to you what the linkage will be with a CMMC type of, uh, with the CMMC or whether the federal civilian executive branch agencies will adopt a CMMC like um, entity or regime. But you can see that a lot of the principles that were, that are being used in DOD are, will now also be used in the federal uh, civilian executive branch context. You talked before about the limitations of an executive order and that it kind of is done under, um, existing statutory authority. As you look at the problems that, um, and, and some of the recent events that have made the news, are there new statutory authorities that um, DHS or CISA are um, seeking to get to complement the um, objectives of the EO? I mean, I think, I mean, this is this is an ongoing topic of conversation, um, as as is probably not surprising. I mean, the one the one area that I that I will point to is reporting requirements as. We talked about these have been, you know, snuck in is not the right word, but they've been adopted pursuant to, as Dan just said, the contractual provisions with respect to those entities who contract with the federal government requiring certain types of reporting. Um, there's long been discussions of federal reporting requirements that would apply and have consistent standards um, that across um, different sectors, um, across different entities. Thank you. Jen, as you know, most of the company's critical um, infrastructure is owned by private industry and is not directly controlled by the government. There's um, been a question about this notion that, you know, depending what industry, you have the agency that tends to regulate it coming out, coming out with its own cyber requirements or maybe not coming out with their own cyber requirements. Um, and has there been any thought to, rather than doing this industry by industry standards, having more stringent kind of uniform standards across the board? So I think it's a it's a great question. I think it's a it's a 
challenging question. I think it's the source of lots of conversations, conversations I had before I went into government and conversations that I've seen going on since I've been in government. Um, I think I think there are it's a it's a challenging issue to tackle. Um, I don't I don't have any answers, but I acknowledge that it's it's a real issue and something that um, I think people are thinking about. Anyone who's uh, works in, as a cyber lawyer knows the um, benefits of tabletops, exercises, and we have now received a question with regard to the future of the national level exercise um, 2020. I, not surprisingly, like many other things, um, it had to be put on the shelf last year. And they're, they're, they're wondering what DHS's and CIS's plans are for that type of effort to test the policies outlined in the new out EO and the associated plans, um, like the uh, National Cyber Incident Response Plan, to see how these policies and and, and plans actually uh, work in practice. I, I'm not I'm not aware of any particular plans, but obviously we have a very robust um, exercise organization. I will commend people to look at that again, CISA.gov, and look at the exercises page. There's a lot of resources that you can leverage there. And I'm sure they will incorporate concepts from the executive order into um, future exercises. And I'm sure that's true of other exercise groups, such as those who uh, run the NLE. But I'm not, I couldn't comment specifically on the NLE or, or specific exercises that are planned. Thank you. You know, one of the things that the cybersecurity um, order addresses is incident response plans and um, the need to kind of, um, from focused on maybe the civilian agencies, I don't remember if it was all agencies, kind of having a uniform cyber incident response plan or at least meeting certain standards. What issue is that trying to address? And um, will that be shared? So best, you know, uh, companies can incorporate some of that into their, um, some of the best practices into their own incident response plans? Well, what is trying to address is, I think that as our, our teams have tried to engage with federal agencies on a number of incidents over the years, and particularly these last months, um, it's hard to work together because you're 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 two different entities, and you think about um, approaching things different ways. You report different ways. We need to have a standardized way that we are um, that we are carrying out our business, so that we can quickly um, engage, and so that the reporting can be done in ways that seniors around the government can understand and comprehend. Okay, here's what's actually happening. So I, I've seen it in, in both regards, but the reporting side of it is uh, very frustrating at times. You want to know what's happening and what, and, you, and the answer is we're just going to have to do some more work and we'll get back to you in 24, 48, 72 hours when we can kind of normalize, uh, you know, what we're hearing. So that's what we're trying to get at is um, everybody's doing good work, but let's normalize uh, where we are and create a, a playbook that people can work from. We talked a little bit um, and had some questions and, and you guys addressed the notion of um, the information you get from um, private industry and, and trying to get more of that through leveraging the government's buying power. What about interagency uh, sharing of information? I know that's another area that's that's had some issues. I know um, that often in the private industry, you get all these different agencies wanting you to participate in different reporting um, programs. Why can't to just get their information from the other agencies rather than add a new reporting regime. It's important to, to everybody to remember that under FISMA, the Federal Information Security Modernization Act, 
we operate in a federated system. Every federal agency is responsible for its own security. And then OMB provides government-wide um, policy. We provide implementing guidance. Uh, we have teams that will help you and, and different things, but each, it is a federated environment. Inside a federated environment then, you've got those issues of, of information sharing. I will say that after the OPM breach, it's a different world now. There's a level of cooperation and collaboration in the federal civilian executive branch environment that never existed before. And the federal agencies did not oppose, do not oppose, but actually endorse, look forward to the provisions in this EO and a lot of other work that's being done collaboratively. We're just in a, a completely different place. But it is important to understand it is federated. And so to some extent, it, it is a, a voluntary environment. Now, we also now have the Secretary of Homeland Security now has the authority to be directive, binding operational directives or emergency directives that the secretary can issue that re requirements. So there is a mandatory aspect of the federal environment as well. But in any case, I think it's still important to, to realize that information sharing is, is something that has to be cultivated even within the federal system. It's just a, we're in a, a, a very cooperative and collaborative place at this time. Right, and, that's, and that is, I think, an improvement that we're all seeing. And I must say in recent months, um, you know, as we faced a series of pretty notable events, I think that you're seeing information sharing going both ways. And I think one of the things that private industry always wants is, is a little bit more timely heads up. We really appreciate both of you um, joining us today. And thank you everyone for joining. And I hope this was helpful. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.